This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Donald Trump's trade war with China starts in earnest, and Britain's government takes another wrong turn on the road to Brexit. Welcome to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, coming to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames in London. And Mary Kissel is still safely ensconced in her secure, undisclosed location. I'm joined again today by my friend and colleague Hugo Restall, who is at a different secure, undisclosed location. His is in Asia. Hey, Hugo. Hi, Joe. And we are going to jump, jump right into the major story in the global economy today at the stroke of midnight this morning, Monday, the 24th of September in Washington, D.C., new tariffs took effect on $200 billion worth of imports from China. It's a tariff of 10% on thousands of products. And Donald Trump campaigned on a promise to do this, which he says is going to bring jobs back to America. And he says that trade wars are easy to win. And so as everyone around the world tries to make sense of what the economic implications of this are going to be for the U.S., for China, for trade and the rest of the world, Hugo, I figure we should probably start right uh, where Trump does and look at this move in his own terms before we actually look at some of the broader impacts of this new trade war that is uh, starting. And I think the big question to me would seem to be, is the showdown with Beijing actually as easy to win as Trump and his advisors seem to think it is? And what is winning actually going to mean here? Well, exactly. Uh, we don't know what the envisioned end game of this is from Trump's point of view. I think it's worth stepping back for a moment and noting how remarkable this situation is. The assumption of many of us, myself included, was that Trump was simply looking for a an easy win. The Chinese would be able to make some concessions, uh, bring down the bilateral trade deficit a bit, buy some more U.S. Uh, soybeans and, and other products. And that would be, you know, Trump would d- declare victory and, and go on to other issues. And how wrong we were. I mean, really, Trump has now escalated to this to the point where it's having a serious impact on consumers, also on American companies, which, you know, have been caught in the crossfire, and many other companies around the world, which go in and out of China and the U.S. So it's, um, it really is incredible in the sense that he is upsetting so many powerful people's interests, but has plowed ahead nonetheless, um, giving the lie to the, the idea that somehow, you know, the, the, uh, the interest groups, you know, really run the, the policy on this. A determined president can really upset the apple cart. Now, I, f- I feel like we do need to dig into a little bit of uh, you know what some of the interests and the, the characteristics of the economies on both sides of this uh, U.S.-China dispute are, uh, in order to try to you know game out a little bit how this is going to end up progressing if really uh, the Trump administration does stick to these tariffs. Um, you know, for any considerable amount of time. And, you know, maybe the, the the place to start is actually on the U.S. side, because I think that, you know, certainly this theme, this protectionist theme, I think, has always had a certain amount of resonance in U.S. politics, even if it never quite managed to elect a majority in Washington. This notion that somehow trade is a game that... Um, 
America loses, the other countries win at America's expense. Uh, the the uh, you know expansion of trade in America's trade deficit on its own is responsible for uh, the loss of U.S. manufacturing jobs over the longer term. Uh, the you know these trade deficits somehow weaken the economy. Now the, the one of the things I find fascinating about the Trump tariffs, and of course what we have this morning is the biggest tranche of them, but we've already been starting to see uh, other tariffs, aluminum, steel products, uh, those tariffs coming online. Um, you know, is that we're beginning to understand why it is that it was so difficult to dislodge uh, free trade in Washington, because you know what people are realizing is that actually American companies have come to rely on a lot of these imported, um, you know, components, the, the inputs to the, the things that Americans do manufacture, and that actually American uh, exporters and consumers have a lot on the line uh, in terms of preserving free trade here. So you know, this has been a much riskier strategy for Trump to pursue from that perspective than I think that uh, many of us probably thought he might want to do. Right. It's it's the old problem that if you put a tariff on uh, input, your companies that use those inputs become less competitive. So, you know, in the past, they, uh, the U.S. policy on sugar has kept the, the price of sugar high because, of, you know, lobby in Florida. The candy companies uh, then were uncompetitive as compared to European uh, chocolate manufacturers in Brussels. So then you have the problem of how do you protect your candy manufacturers and so on. But that that is now playing out uh, with the China tariff uh, and the steel and aluminum tariffs as well. Um, so, you know, the longer we stay with this policy, um, the deeper the losses are going to be to those, those companies. And, you know, I think we need to really focus on that issue there because I think this also explains uh, a lot of the unease globally that um, we are starting to see as a result of this. I mean, I'm sitting here in uh, London uh, following European economies, and you know, there there is a lot of concern about this. And it's not necessarily, I, I think, that countries are particularly concerned about the bilateral trade balance between the U.S. and China. I get the sense that the real worry is the impact that this has on the U.S. economy. And it is a, you know, and from that perspective, it's a big economic and political risk for Donald Trump because, uh, you know, the economy has been performing so well on his watch. I think that we had the tax reform in late 2017, which seems to be starting to unlock a lot of uh, productive investment in the economy. Uh, we've had a lot of capital flowing back into the U.S. as a result of that. Uh, you know, the Trump deregulation agenda is a really important uh, piece of that uh, economic policy puzzle, um, you know, that has really been helping to unlock a lot of growth. And I think that there is concern that these, uh, you know, trade wars that Trump is intent on launching, you know, rather than strengthening the U.S. economy, are actually weakening it at a time when a lot of trade partners uh, are, are really relying on growth in the U.S. to pull up, uh, you know, a lot of other boats with that tide. And China, of course, too. I mean, China has been a major engine of, of global growth since the global financial crisis in particular. It, it sort of pulled uh, a lot of Asia through that crisis with its stimulus package. So how does Europe uh, and other parts of the world that are not uh, firing on all cylinders deal with this? And does does this let the genie of protectionism uh, out of the bottle in those places as well? Does it does it start to spread to those economies? Well, see, that again is the thing where it feels like we're uh, trying to shoot at a moving target right now as we uh, you know, come to terms with a, a lot of these questions because... 
you know, there seems to be evidence that there's a bit of a change. I think that a big part of the concern uh, early on in the Trump administration was that actually a lot of these trade policies were not going to discriminate between America's, uh, you know, friends versus, uh, you know, opponents or, you know, competitors. Um, you know, I think that probably actually a lot of European governments, a lot, certainly a lot of European companies, uh, would have been happy to cooperate with the Trump administration on some sort of united front to deal with a lot of the very real problems in the Chinese economy that do distort global trade. I think that, you know, a big issue, uh, you know, that often comes up is intellectual property protection, um, you know, Chinese regulators forcing the transfer of intellectual property from foreign partners to Chinese companies. It's a condition of doing business there. I mean, European companies get hit by that, too. Um, you know, early on, there had been a, a fear that, uh, you know, Trump was just going to go after everyone. He was pursuing trade complaints against Europe uh, as well, and that was going to hinder cooperation on some of these shared interests on China. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to see some evidence that maybe actually there is a bit more of a cooperative approach developing between the U.S., uh, you know, Europe, North American partners, Japan, uh, on some of these issues than maybe there had been before. Right. I mean, I, I was looking at a, a very interesting piece in the, in the Financial Times, our competitor, uh, on September 11th, called uh, Trade Wars, China Fears, an Emerging United Front, talking precisely about this, about uh, how Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, has, uh, has been having some success, you know, coordinating with the EU and, and Japanese uh, counterparts on China policy, in particular the issue of uh, uh, industrial policy and the Made in China 2025 program, which forces companies to turn over their intellectual property. So that that really is the worry from China's point of view, that uh, the Trump administration will will put aside its, uh, its tariff initiatives against allies and concentrate on on China. If that were to happen, there might actually be some some chance of a, of a positive outcome in terms of forcing China to uh, comply with its World Trade Organization promise. But, and that is something that really we, do, we we need to focus more on here because I think that it's certainly the temptation when you know whenever any Donald Trump is involved in something like this, he has this tendency of sucking all of the oxygen out of the room, making it very difficult to focus on anything other than his activities for good or ill. But I mean, it is important to understand that there are legitimate problems with Chinese economic policy that are creating serious distortions in uh, global trade right now. And those are often not, uh, you know, what people have tended to think. I think that, you know, often, and perhaps even among many people who voted for, for Trump, the classical view was that China is just becoming the low wage factory to the world. Uh, it, you know, it's drawing a, a lot of that lower productivity manufacturing away from company, you know, countries like the U.S. or European countries that used to do that. I mean, historically, there was an element of that, but that isn't really where the, the concern is right now. It has a lot more to do with the things that you were talking about, the intellectual property protection, um, you know, trade conflicts and, and policy problems that are arising as China uh, you know, moves further up the value chain and, and starts trying to muscle its way into some of these very high-tech, high-innovation industries and is trying to take shortcuts in that um, you know, by relying on state-subsidized credit, um, you know, various technology transfer requirements for, for foreign partners. 
I, I mean, the, the point of that is I think that there are legitimate concerns that, that need to be addressed with China's trading policy. Um, you know, the, the real question that you have to be asking is, uh, are these tariffs the right way to pursue that? Right. China is not as dependent on uh, that low-wage manufacturing as it used to be. A lot of that activity is already moving to other countries. But at the same time, there's a retreat of the private sector within China. The, the, uh, the state interference in the economy is actually increasing under Xi Jinping. So it's, uh, it's a myth that the, the U.S. has leverage over China by uh, putting tariffs on all of these uh, cheap manufactured goods. The real leverage I think that the U.S. has is over its it's control over uh, high technology. That's, China is really afraid that its uh, access to technology is going to be curtailed, and that's really where we get we get their attention. And, and that is the th- the big thing that worries me about the Trump administration and its approach to these issues, because it's it's not always clear to me that there are people in the Trump administration who understand that. I mean, certainly Trump himself. Uh, is of a certain generation. He really came of age in the 80s and 90s when there were a lot of concerns about uh, you know, Japanese trade policy. Um, you know, people who were advising him, uh, Wilbur Ross, Peter Navarro, um, you know, Robert Lighthizer, uh, historically very interested in these old-style uh, manufacturing industries. And so I do think that we are going to have to see if that uh, crew of people are equipped to deal with these you know, much more complicated modern uh, trade disputes. But we're reporting from the trenches of Donald Trump's trade war, and this is Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. This podcast is brought to you by Alex Partners. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index, online today at disruption.alexpartners.com. Drive time, gym time, anytime. WSJ Podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. I'm Joseph Sternberg in for Mary Kissel, and I'm joined on the line by my friend and colleague Hugo Restall in Asia. And we are now headed up to my neck of the woods, uh, Europe, to talk about Brexit again, uh, whether we want to or not. Um, And certainly uh, we have been trying not to talk too much about Brexit on uh, this podcast because there's so many other instances of global uh, mayhem and disorder going on. But I think that events in Brexit took a pretty important turn last week that we do need to uh, talk about because there was an EU leaders summit in the Austrian city of Salzburg that did not go well at all for British Prime Minister Theresa May um, and her attempt to hasten along negotiations to an exit from the European Union. And in fact, it was actually an unusually nasty uh, summit. You had French President Emmanuel Macron apparently in a a fit of frustration with the British negotiating position, uh, calling some of the British politicians who had supported Brexit liars. Uh, You know, Prime Minister Theresa May comes back from this engulfed in chaos over the weekend. Uh, And you know, Hugo, I think maybe let me try to give you my diagnosis of, the, of this problem in a nutshell, and then you tell sure. me if it sounds convincing. 
Okay. I, I, I mean, I just think that the real problem that is going on here is that Britain has not been able to articulate a negotiating posi- position on Brexit that makes sense to the rest of the world. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know, all along the EU has articulated a set of red lines that I, I think were very predictable from their perspective, um, you know, having to do with not wanting to cherry pick because from the you know the perspective of most of the remaining eu member states they think that the european union is a delicately uh balanced web of uh costs and benefits and they don't want people to get in the habit of trying to pick off all of the benefits that a a member state can achieve without having to also pay some of the the policy costs so for example they don't want um you know poland to think that it can benefit from uh, the ability of Polish workers to move to other parts of the EU and also Poland's ability to absorb uh, EU budget funds for road and bridges, uh, bridge projects without Poland also having to implement market opening reforms that, that come with EU membership and uh, just a whole range of things like that. And what seems to be emerging here is this big... Um, failure of British negotiators to comprehend that they're going to have to work within that framework. Right. So the the British wanted, as we discussed last week, to stay in the common market for good, but not services and all the other accoutrement of EU membership. But essentially, they're, they're going to have to come out of the common market for good to some extent and, and have and negotiate some sort of a trade deal. But but that trade deal, of course, cannot be negotiated uh, quickly enough for, for the, uh, the Brexit deadline, right? So, I mean, how is it, how is this going to work? Uh, well, <laughs> that, that would seem to be the $64,000 question here, because... Uh, I I mean, it is true that in theory, uh, Britain can leave the EU uh, and then negotiate some kind of trade agreement as a third country, um, you know, that might include, um, you know, trade in goods. Because, I mean, the reality is that cutting tariffs on uh, traded goods is not uh, the difficult part of uh, modern day trade negotiations. I mean, services are the sticking point. So there is a certain logic to trying to split off the, the two issues there. The problem is that um, Britain wants to be able to continue trading with the EU in the same way that it does right now from a practical standpoint. So without having to deal with border enforcement, um, without having to have invasive or or time-consuming customs checks at the border. And, you know, partly they want to do that for the convenience of companies that are based on the, the UK mainland and England, Scotland and Wales. Um, you know, that are plugged into these uh, just-in-time supply chains with the rest of the EU right now. Partly they want to do that to avoid a hard border on the uh, island of Ireland between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, But, you know, the problem is that you can't really do that if you haven't harmonized all of the, the rules and regulations, and that really is the sticking point, this discovery that in order to have that kind of frictionless frictionless trade uh, that the pro-Brexit politicians in Britain do want, they also have to accept a lot of the uh, European Union rules on product safety standards and um you know, other matters like that that they don't want. And I think that that is really the, the sticking point, because if they wanted to leave, they could. 
It's just that they don't want to uh, inflict on businesses the kind of practical inconvenience that comes from doing that. But they also don't want to uh, adopt the mechanism that the EU has developed in terms of these shared regulations that make it possible to avoid all, all of those problems. So what did Theresa May think was going to happen when she came up with this plan at Checkers? I mean, it, it now seems that she was horribly naive in ignoring uh, EU red lines uh, when she, she proposed this plan, uh, went through all the rigmarole with, with, within her own party. And then, uh, and then took it to Salzburg and, and was humiliated. Well, see, I think part of the problem here has been figuring out um, who is negotiating with whom in this process. I mean, you mentioned the Chequers Agreement, which is really this blueprint that uh, May's government developed over the summer. It's named after the uh, British Prime Minister's summer country house uh, estate, Chequers. Uh, and what she did basically is summoned all of the members of her cabinet up there and locked them in a room until they agreed on this... Um, uh, plan for exiting the, you know, for what Brexit would look like. I mean, the problem is that that was really a, a negotiation where, uh, you know, May's Conservative Party has been negotiating with itself on this because there are a lot of divisions within British politics on this. And, it, you know, that ought to have been a starting point for negotiations with the rest of the EU. Uh, and yet you have a large faction within a, a, and a very noisy faction within May's Conservative Party who are suggesting that that checkers agreement is really an ending point. And I think that that has never been particularly realistic. And part of me feels like when we have spectacles like this fiasco in Salzburg, you know, how much of that is just that you have to have moments like that to prove to some of these uh, pro-Brexit uh, conservatives mm -hmm. here in Britain that their plan just isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. But uh, as we were discussing last week, the Labour Party was... Uh, on the verge of having a conference, which is, I believe is now opened. So what's what's happening there? Well, see, I think that the, the big question in domestic politics now is going to be whether Labour is able to capitalize on this. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, the, the radical leftist uh, who's the leader of the Labour Party, has a lot of political problems. He's been spent most of the summer embroiled in a, a scandal uh, you know, involving charges that he and many of his supporters are anti-Semitic in, in various ways. That um, you know is really problematic. Um, and you know, there's also this division within Labour about uh, you know supporter opposition for Brexit. They seem to be working their way around to a position where the, a position where they might be prepared to offer voters the prospect of a second referendum on whether to actually go ahead with Brexit once a deal is done. I think that that is potentially very dangerous for the conservatives. I think that uh, you know the backdrop to all of this has been a conservative sense that they can kind of natter around with Brexit as much as they want to because Labour is not a viable opposition. So voters are going to feel like they will be stuck with some conservative prime minister no matter what. I, I think that that's a very dangerous assumption these days. And one of the things that worries me is the, the time that you have a very radical leader of uh, the main opposition party uh, you know, who would present a lot of problems for, for uh, Britain if he were to become the prime minister, uh, you have a conservative party that doesn't really seem to be very concerned about the prospect that they might lose an election at some point. Right. And Jeremy Corbyn really wants a general election. Uh, the question for him has been, would endorsing a, a second referendum on, on Brexit uh, resonate with public and help him in that in that cause and it, it 
the tide does seem to be shifting in that direction now, which is which is very worrying. Yeah, and the, and the other thing that I think that uh, British conservatives tend to forget is that there's a real asymmetry in the way that people think about this. So you occasionally hear, um, you know, especially in parts of the the media here that are favorable to conservatives. Yeah, you know, this this notion that somehow uh, Labour is crippled by its its divisions on on Brexit and is just as bad on this issue as the the Conservatives are in in their way, I just don't think that that is a, a viable election position because people tend to expect more of the party to to whom they have handed power, and so again, I think that there are a bunch of problematic domestic political considerations that are underlying. Um, you know, some of these calculations lead into, uh, you know, the way that the conservatives formulate a position on Brexit ahead of a, a summit like Salzburg, uh, you know, that, that play to the way that the conservatives spin that, uh, you know, failure once they get back here uh, in, in Britain that I, I just don't think are, are particularly plausible. The, the Labour, I've seen Labour Party people saying that, uh, you know, we could handle the negotiations better. I mean, that may not be true, but given how badly things are going, I mean, that's that's at least a uh, a plausible election platform. Yeah, and what a depth you have reached when the most compelling uh, you know platform people are coming up with is we will not fail quite as badly as the other people. But we have been talking Brexit chaos, and unfortunately, that's all the time we've got for today. On behalf of Hugo and myself, thanks for listening, and please follow us on Twitter at Hugo Restall or at Joseph Sternberg, both one word. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your audio content. Make sure that you stay up to date with our running catalog of global disorder. For now, I'm Joseph Sternberg, and this has been Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We look forward to coming back to you later this week.